and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. This episode is jam-packed. First, I play an interview that my sometimes co-host Nando Villa and I did with Paula Jean Swearingen. She is the 2020 Democratic nominee for U.S. Senate in West Virginia. She was originally an office manager. She lost the 2018 Democratic primary for the U.S. Senate to incumbent Joe Manchin, but got the most primary votes against an incumbent U.S. senator in the state in 75 years. In June 2020, Swearingen won the Democratic primary for Senate and will face Shelley Moore Capito in the general election. She's affiliated with West Virginia Can't Wait, Justice Democrats, and Brand New Congress. Find out more about her at paulajean.com. Then I play an interview that I did with Cori Bush. Then I speak to Ro Khanna. I'm going to bring in our, our first guest. Um, I've had her on the show before on the podcast. I interviewed her at the uh, People Summit. Really great, progressive, um, uh, Paula Jean Swearingen, and she is running for the Senate in West Virginia. Hi. Hi, everyone. How are you doing? Good, Paula you? Jean, I got, I got to ask. I'm sure you get this all the time. Are you related to Al Swearingen of Deadwood fame? <laughs> Actually, it's my ex-husband's name. My maiden name is Foley, but nobody's related. <laughs> nobody's related. Okay, that's good. Well, it's good you that yeah you wouldn't want to be related to an ex-husband. No, that'd that's be good, weird. Yeah. Tell us what you are up to. Uh, congratulations on winning your primary. Tell us how that happened and what that felt like. Uh, well, the campaign's up to a lot. I'm really proud of the team that we have. Uh, you know, winning our primary, if you told me 15 years ago that I'd be the Democratic nominee for United States Senate, I'd probably laughed at you. But, you know, we've I've evolved throughout the years as a mom and activist to get to this point. Um, and it's just because it's necessary, no matter how much we protest or, you know, I've spoke to the United Nations, I've lobbied, I've done everything that I could for clean water, clean water, clean air and economic diversity in our state. It went on deaf ears. And that's why I ended up running for office. Uh, you know, we see all kinds of candidates, you know, locally here in West Virginia and across the country, you know, running for office because it's important. We need a government of the people, by the people, for the people, and not people in Congress that are um, working on bipartisan efforts to serve their, you know, their uh, corporations and lobbyists is what it boils down to. But our campaign uh, when people say, oh, gosh, you're going against a lot of dark money. How are you going to raise money? I can say I'm really humbly and incredibly proud. We've had so many people to endorse and step up and so many West Virginians that, you know, have had to leave the state because there are no job opportunities to to donate and volunteer for the campaign. We have raised over a million dollars. The average donation has been twenty six dollars and thirty cents. And we all almost, almost outraised my opponent last quarter, who has three over $3 million in her campaign coffers and less than 2% in individual donations. And um, I just can't thank everybody enough uh, that has been so supportive 
We sent over 80,000 texts last week. We have a comprehensive digital marketing team. We have over 12 people on staff. Most of our staff and volunteers are West Virginians. And my campaign manager, he's um, in an adjoining county from mine in the coal fields. I'm in, you know, I'm from Wyoming County. He lives in Logan County. He's a black hat coal miner and a trucker. And for, you know, we're stigmatized, especially in the coal fields, that we don't have no teeth, no shoes, and no brains. And I'm absolutely beyond proud of my team because we've showed face and said we do have teeth, shoes, and brains. Yeah. And we have a good solid chance, chance of flipping this seat, especially when you look at the dynamic of what's going on in West Virginia. We have more Democrats and Republicans registered. I mean, Democrats and independents than Republicans. But it's not really about partisan politics. It's about people surviving and having true representation for the change. We've had so many Republicans come into the fold. We've even had, uh, like, the Dominion Post. Um, they are a paper in Mon County, West Virginia, and they are very conservative. And they not only endorse this campaign, but they've really come out for the campaign because West Virginians want the same things. They want economic diversity. We want long-term solutions to the addiction epidemic. We want health care. We want something as basic as a clean glass of water. Mm. We want adequate sewage systems. You know, we want comprehensive broadband. We hear my opponent, Shelly Moore Capito, talking about Capito Connect. She's been in the Senate for five and a half years, and it really shows how disconnected she is. She's wanting to sell us out to the highest bidder like she always has and privatize it. When we've seen state and federal funding go into broadband, and it's never been implemented because a lot of these companies have spent the money out of state. And so we have people working on legislation to make sure that we do have federal and state legislation that would privatize it because it ties into our infrastructure, um, our educational system, our, you know, our communications, um, so many things. I mean, so many things that are needed here in West Virginia. It's one of the sickest and poorest states in the nation. But, you know, West Virginia has really rose up. I mean, I think that we've been underestimated. Mm. This is the heart of labor. You know, we have the, you know, the blood of our ancestors in our veins, you know, mm. Mother Jones, Joe Hill, the mothers of Blair Mountain, Mate One. We've seen it in 2018 during the teacher strike when we led the teacher strike across the country. Nobody talked about party affiliation. Nobody was working on bipartisan efforts to serve corporations and lobbyists. West Virginia stood up together. And we've seen it this time in the 2020 election. We led the charge in 2018, but we really led the charge here in 2020. Uh, we had 93 candidates on a slate called the West Virginia Can't Wait slate that swore off corporate PAC dollars. 43 of those candidates won their primaries, ordinary West Virginians, and it's exciting because it's ever since women have been voting for 100 years, West Virginia made history um, with this primary. Every Democratic nominee, first congressional district, uh, the second, the third United States Senate, we are all women, we're all progressive, and none of us take corporate and corporate tax dollars. My opponent was the first woman to be elected to the United States Senate to represent the state of West Virginia. She's a mother and grandmother. And people underestimate how united West Virginians are. I've worked for so many issues across the state, like in Payton City, they're dealing with a water crisis. And it was mothers leading the charge 
in Payton City. It wasn't, you know, Democrat or Republican. It was women setting to get, you know, working together. And I worked with those women. Some of them were Republican. One thing you don't do in Appalachia is mess with their young because women are going to come out of the belly of these kicking and screaming. And now we have four women that are ready to bust the halls of Congress wide open and making sure that West Virginia and every child across the country has a fighting chance. And we have a seat at the table in Washington, D.C. When, when you mentioned, you know, we don't have we have our teeth. It's It's so disturbing that people just openly make jokes about class and health that way um, in a way that they, you know, I mean, I'm not saying, I mean, you do have your teeth. There are people who have their teeth. There are people who don't have their teeth, but this kind of like mockery and stigmatization of people, if they don't have the perfect teeth, wherever they are, but like the idea that that's something that people should be looked down upon as opposed to something that we should be ashamed of as, as a problem in this country. Well, divide and conquer is an age-old strategy. Right. If we have health care, then we can fix our teeth. So, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and at, that's just the thing. It's 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 to keep us divided and keep us downtrodden. And you know, West Virginians, you know, we're we're called racist and red, and we're some probably the most hospitable people in the world. Yeah. Uh, we have, like I said, more Democrats and independents registered in the state. But I know a lot of people that are Republicans, and we don't have to agree on everything. But most West Virginians that I know, we believe in the moral compass of treating people respectfully and equally. And also, we take care of each other. We've always taken care of each other. And we are some of the most hospitable people in the world. But, you know, it's, you know, you can, you can talk about people in other states when you're not really there. And, you know, we hear from the media, the media comes into West Virginia, they try to pick the worst person to, to, you know, amplify um, just to make us look bad. And that's just not the case. West Virginians are some of the most beautiful people I've ever met. And can you tell us what it was like? You were the um, you are the daughter of a coal miner, the niece of a coal miner, the stepdaughter of a coal miner, and the and uh, the granddaughter of a coal miner. What that that how that informed your politics and your view of the world um, and shaped uh, your your campaign? Well, you know, I'm a proud coal miner's daughter, but because I am, you know, most of my family's been to in, you know worked in the industry. I've been more funerals than I have family reunions. Uh, you know, the Industrial Revolution was built on the backs of Appalachians, their families, and surrounding communities. And when people turn on their light switches because of the blood of Appalachians. And when I was a little girl, I drank acid mine drainage. Our water was blue with a purple film, had specks of metal in it. Um, and I, until my stepdad got laid off in the coal mines and we moved to North Carolina for a while, I didn't know I was, I wasn't a redhead until I was 12 years old and had access to clean water. And we came back home to help take care of my grandfather. And I found out people still didn't have access to clean water. Uh, You know, with the boom and the bust of the market, I know what it's like to go hungry when the market for coal is down. And we still hear it as a political talking point, but coal's been declining since the 70s. And one of the coolest lies that any politician can tell that is coal is going to rebound. It's not going to happen for us anymore. There's too many competing markets. We had over 140,000 coal miners in the 70s. We have less than 50,000 nationwide. 
it's on its way out and there's no just transition. And that's why I got in this fight because I've seen, you know, not only did this industry come in here and get rich off our backs and pull the rug out from underneath us, but they had no care for minor safety, you know, with the upper big branch mining disaster. Everybody was saying it's going to happen. And those men didn't walk out because they knew it was going to happen. There was no ventilation in that mine. But when you worry about where your next meal is going to come from anyway, and you know if you speak out and you're going to be blacklisted, you're going to do everything to protect your job. I know as a mother, I cut off my legs for my children and grandchildren, so I get it. But our representatives let it happen, and they let them destroy our water and destroy our air. And we hear jobs, 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 but we don't hear any talk about a plan B. For anybody in Appalachia, it's still just this political pandering, all these empty promises, and they're never fulfilled. And people in the southern coal fields, they're living in impoverished conditions comparable to a third world country. I know people that have cardboard for windows, even out in the northern, northern panhandle. With Weirton Steel, with a de decline in coal, you know, the steel market is down and Weirton is going bankrupt and those people are struggling. And people are struggling all across the state and there's nobody doing anything about it. And uh, that's why you see an uprising in Appalachia and West Virginia, because we're sick and tired of being collateral damage. And we need to get back to the intent of this country, of the people, by the people, for the people, and create a government that actually serves the people. You know, we don't have to agree on everything. And if we hang on to the two-party system, we need to make sure that people are making sincere efforts to be public servants and making decisions for the people that are they are supposed to serve instead of corporations and lobbyists. And if these people are not going to do their jobs, they need to know we're going to hold them accountable and we're going to come after their jobs because we can't go, you know, West Virginia can't go through this much longer. We don't have a plan B. People are dying and starving here, but it's also happening across the country. And people are seeing that our government is not serving us anymore and we have to do something about it. Can you clarify what you meant about the red hair? Well, my hair was orange. It was red. It was dyed red from our water. And until I had access to clean water, I didn't realize I was a brunette. That's really, wow. wow. You know, the way a lot of Democrats and liberals um, speak about coal mining in West Virginia is often in a way that's like very degrading and, you know, understanding that obviously because of climate change, we need to, you know, transition away from fossil fuels. If you were kind of the head of the Democratic Party, um, how, how should the Democratic Party speak about that issue specifically? Because it's one that, you know, it just is so top of mind to a lot of people, but the, the way they, they kind of speak to it is often, is often, I find, counterproductive. You know, as much as the people in Appalachia have paid the price for when you turn on your light switch, like I said, it's 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 because of the blood Appalachians that we fueled this country. Mm -hmm. And we have gotten to the point in Appalachia, we're not asking, we're demanding that we have economic diversity and we have federal funding to go into states like ours so we can diversify our economy. There's so many things that you can do. Uh, we can invest in renewables. If we legalize and decriminalize cannabis, which we know it's just a matter of time that it's going to happen on a federal level, and absolutely I'd stand behind that, but I hope states in Appalachia get behind it because we would see economic growth within six to eight months. 
there's a lot of potential for geothermal. I know specifically in West Virginia, we have a lot of hot spots here. This is the birthplace of rivers. We have a lot of dams. There's a lot of potential for hydropower. Um, if we had comprehensive broadband, which my opponent always talks about, she wants to privatize it and sell us off to the highest bidder. And we've seen that doesn't work. We've seen companies get state and federal funding and end up spending that money out of state. Um, Capito Connect, it really shows how disconnected my opponent is. You know, it should be a public utility. It ties into, you know, our economic development, our infrastructure, as well as communication and as communications as, and as well as education. We were already advancing into digital learning. And during this pandemic, while they're taking this push and pushing their children back into school, the most vulnerable children are going to be pushed into unsafe working, you know, unsafe conditions, as well as our educators and our school service personnel. Because, for one, I don't know a lot of Appalachians that can afford broadband if they had it. And we've created these hotspots across the state where they can download you know, the things that they need on their iPads. You know, it's going to be cold soon. We don't have rural transportation in a lot of these areas, especially where they're plagued with the addiction epidemic and food deserts. And so what is going to happen is we're going to push those children back into unsafe conditions just because they're poor and they have a lot of things going on at home. Uh, you know, we had, if we have good roads, good schools, good bridges, adequate sewage systems, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We can invite business to Appalachia and business will want, businesses will want to come here. But if we're not even, you know, our most valuable resources are people first and foremost. But people are not going to want to settle here if they don't have access to broadband. You know, people, sewage is running into the rivers and streams. And if, you know, we don't have access to clean water and clean air, they do not want to move into communities when we're dealing with one of the largest addiction epidemics in the country. Um, it's just the possibilities are endless, but we need people that are going to be visionaries for our future instead of visionaries for our demise. And, you know, first and foremost, we hear about all these bipartisan efforts, but it's bipartisan efforts to cater to corporations and lobbyists instead of, you know, taking care of the most vulnerable in our society. And this state has been proven to be very vulnerable with with COVID, we rank one of the top. We have a large population of elderly. You know, we have a lot of sick folks with uh, black lung, the addiction epidemic, cancer, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, you know, my opponent, uh, she even tried to, she's voted against equal pay for women at least three times. She tried to turn Medicare into a voucher program. She says Medicare for all is Medicare for none. And I'd like for her to explain because that makes no sense because she's still <laughs> catering to, you know, private insurance companies. There's just so many things and the writing is there on the wall. And West Virginians are beginning to see that we are in the fight for our lives. And people across the country have invested so much in these campaigns. And it's up to us now to vote in people that will actually serve us. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I, I love West Virginia. I love to be home. I want normalcy. I fought for years for normalcy, but I'm in this fight for my children and grandchildren and every child in Appalachia and in this country. This country girl does not want to go to D.C. And if I'm going to have to go there for six years, I'm going to rake six tons of hell while I'm there. And I'm going to be working when I come back home because this is about survival for us.
So what is the transition uh, for coal miners that you envision and that you're going to help fight for? Well, there is no, there's no transition now. There's no just transition. You know, people are getting laid off every day. When we talk about economic diversity, if we invest into the Reclaim Act, you know, we don't take things from the, you know, abandoned mine land fund. Just like the miners' health care pensions, it's like my opponent painted herself as a champion to get miners' health care pension. And what it was was one of the biggest anti-union tactics that I think West Virginia's ever seen. We've seen the industry file bankruptcy give them you know give the top you know the their ceos large bonuses open up non-union mines and then tap into the abandoned mine land funds and pay for the miners health care and pensions when that was supposed to restructure create job development great regrowth and they did not hold the industry accountable at, for at all. We need people that are going to make these people pay their damn bills instead of giving them bailouts. And that's basically what happened. And they busted zero union coal mines in West Virginia now. And, you know, my, my opponent's not a champion for that. That was one yes vote. And she's for right to work. She wants to close the doors in the union hall. And we have to make sure that unions, the backs of the unions are back into the backs of the workers. And, where, you know, workers can form unions and have the right to collectively bargain for things that impact their lives day to day. And they can be safe and they can make a living wage. Uh, there's just all these things are so systemic and they're simplistic. And it does. It's not rocket science, but we just have to make sure that we have people that are actually invested and in making sure that people are taken care of. This is one of the richest countries in the world. We do not have a budgeting problem. We have a moral problem that creates a budgeting problem. Yeah, that's what very well put. That's true. And everyone always thinks it's the other way around, right? Like, oh, we would love to. What do you, you know, look, I love that idea as much as you do. We just don't have the money. And that's so important. And actually, I think that's something that, you know, I know that you, one of the things that really put you on the map um, in terms of optics, I guess, was this moment that, this really beautiful moment that you and Senator Bernie Sanders shared. Um, I bring him up because he's someone who really wonderfully has made that argument, right? The, no, it's not about, um, it's not impossible what we're asking for, right? Uh, mm -hmm. We are demanding something that's very doable and we just need to demand it because it's the right thing and it's the doable thing. And the mm -hmm. billionaires have told us for so long that we can't have it, but it's mm -hmm. just they want to keep the money. Can you just tell people about that interaction that you had with Senator Sanders and how that, um, I don't know, affected you and other people? Well, I was just doing what I always done, you know, and I, I seen this little old man. The first time I seen him was 2016 and he had a rally in Charleston and he was talking about things that nobody would ever talk about. And I found out he was showing up at food banks and poor counties like McDowell County. And I'm like, wow, a presidential candidate is showing up at a food bank in, a, in the middle of nowhere. And um, I was writing off ads to national media and Diane Seamus with the Chris Haynes show said, I don't know if we can get you on a panel, but Bernie Sanders is coming up. You know, would you like to come and possibly speak? Well, I didn't get on the panel, but you know, me being the honored Appalachian woman, I'm like, I am not leaving the space until I talk to this guy. So I walked up to him and I'm like, Senator Sanders, I'm called Gene Swearinger, blah, blah, blah. Can I have two minutes of your time? So I followed him from the front of the room 
to the back of the room, back to the front of the room with him signing autographs and everybody giving him hugs and media trying to talk to him. And the amazing thing was he threw his hands up and he said, stop. I told this woman that I would talk to her. And then it moved into me crying like a baby because one, you know, most of the time, especially like with my incumbent, you have to get arrested in her office to be heard or people find paper airplanes demanding health care over the top of her door because she's so inaccessible. And here was the senator of Vermont that didn't, you know, didn't have to care about West Virginia. We're not a swing state. He was just here because he cared. And I loved about him was also when he wasn't running for president, he was still back at food banks. He was still standing shoulder to shoulder with us. And, you know, we've seen this change in this political dynamic across the country where ordinary people were standing up. And he was saying, I can't do this forever. I'm not a hero. Y'all need to do something for yourself. And I'm like, he's right we have to start building this movement and continuing with this movement i was already an activist i'd done everything that i knew possible but you know the next step is he's right if your government doesn't serve you become the government that you want and the government should be us the people in front of the pain should be in front of the power and i i cannot thank senator sanders enough for being the figurehead of that but we need to listen to him too. It is us. His slogan is not me, us. Mm -hmm. And if we're gonna see change, not even only, you know, volunteering, donating, voting in these races, but thinking moving forward, it's long-term. One person can't be a hero. Government 101, legislation, even if it's introduced, is not gonna pass without votes. So long-term, we have to keep on building these strategies from a local level to a federal level, putting people in place that are actually going to take care of us. And I've said it once, and I'll say it again, who better to serve us than us? We solve the problems in the front lines of our communities every day. We work hard to bring change while these people are out of touch. My opponent, I think the only, I don't think she's ever had a job outside of running for office. She's there because of the corrupt le legacy yeah. of her father. She's never wondered where her next meal would come from. She's never had to balance a paycheck. How could she be in it, even be in touch on what our struggles are? She's never had to struggle. And that's what's important to me if I do go to Congress I want to make sure that everybody that has been working in the front lines of our communities have a seat at the table, and I'm going to welcome people in West Virginia and across the country to meet with me and help write legislation that impacts our daily lives. These people can say all day long how they're going to be our saviors, but how are they going to save anything if they don't even know what we need to be saved from, and they keep on working for people that don't care if we live or die? Yeah. Well, um, well, yeah, uh, this has been great. We'd love to have you back on. Anything else you want to make sure that we Absolutely, cover? Yeah. I know that you are very busy, so I really appreciate your time. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, if anybody wants to know about the campaign, it's Pauline.com. And, of course, we on Facebook and Twitter, we're Pauline2020. Um, and if anybody needs anything from me, feel free to reach out. You don't have to get arrested in my office to talk to me. Federal. <laughs> You know, this is a federal office, so it don't only impact West Virginia, it impacts everybody across the 
country. So I always welcome feedback and in, in improvements we can make in the campaign and moving forward as a representative. I know I need to know what I need to do, but it's go time. We have to phone bank and we have to get these people, you know, get people like myself elected. Go to brandnewcongress.org. Look at everybody that went through the primary. They have vetted these candidates. None of them take, are taking corporate PAC dollars. We know that these people are going to be true people servants. Corey Bush, she's a leader in Ferguson. She used to be homeless. I cannot wait to see her on the House floor and yeah. see what good she does. But people like her and myself, we can't do it alone. So look at these other races, too, so we can field a brand new Congress. Yeah. And uh, Cori Bush, spoiler alert, I'm having her on again and come back on before um, sometime soon. Let's yeah. definitely have you on again. Thank, Thank you all so much. Have a good night. Thank you so much. Good luck. You too. Bye. Bye. Very moving, right? Very moving. Unbelievable moving. And, and it's hard to overstate just how important it would be for a sort of Bernie Krat like Paula Jean to flip a red district. I mean, West Virginia was not you know, I think most people think of West Virginia as like this like hopelessly Republican state, but uh, it was like Democratic dominated from like 1930 to like not that long ago, like 2014. Like they had like a, a Democratic governor in like the 90s. And, and it's it's not like this hopelessly Republican state. Like it's it's something that right. can be flipped back um, if if the right kind of people were active you know were activated and 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 it's just like you know the the history of west virginia is kind of like she mentioned it the, the birthplace of organized labor um the, the battle of blair mountain all that history is kind of like it's been completely like erased uh -huh. from the history books like no one learns about it ever as brian frederick just pointed out west virginia voted for dukakis there you go there you go well, yeah Nebbish. one of the few states like that was like Nebbish, that guy that was a um that was a a democratic stronghold forever and it was right. like one that the democratic party abandoned once they abandoned kind of the organized labor movement because that was the really the heart of west virginia for so long so you know, if that if that could be flipped back, that could be like a belt, uh, like a, a real kind of change for the rest of the country. Cori Bush is an American politician, registered nurse, pastor and politivist, which you'll see she uses that term from St. Louis, Missouri, who is the Democratic nominee for Missouri's first congressional district. In August, she defeated 10 term incumbent Lacey Clay in the 2020 U.S. House of Representatives primary election. Corey's first name is spelled C-O-R-I. Thank you so much for joining us today. Really excited to have you back on the show. Me too. <laughs> um, what are you up to? Congrats on your historic um, insurgent victory. Um, let's talk about that first. Then we, we can talk about what you've been doing because you're extremely active, which seems to be like a theme um, with you throughout your life. Um, did you expect the, the victory? When did you think that you were going to win? How was it? different from your other attempts um, at the primary? What, what was it like? You know, I really felt like I would win. That's why I decided to run, you know, run, give it another run, even though I just, you know, I felt like I was already exhausted and I felt like a lifetime candidate at that point uh, when I just started to run again. But um, I really felt like that I was supposed to win the, in 2018, but I had the car accident and so many other things. So I felt like that 
maybe this would be the time because we worked so hard and we did. And, you know, the community was just inspired and there was so much hope, you know, so I felt like we could really do it the entire time. I felt like we could do it. It wasn't until the night of the election, you know, even during the day as we're going to the different polls and I'm talking to people as they're in line and getting ready to vote or coming out after voting, you know, and I'm just like, like I'm doing that all day. Like I'm just, you know, and just excited and talking to kids. But then right after the polls closed, um, my team came in and told me, okay, got to sit you down. You know, they've called the race for clay at 1%, you know, and that I didn't, the feeling I felt, I didn't, I hadn't felt that the entire race and I just couldn't believe it, you know, but then of course, over the next couple of hours, it all turned around. <laughs> yeah. So that feeling went away and was replaced by another feeling. It was over like, I couldn't believe it, even though I felt it would happen. I couldn't believe it because it was really real and, um, you know, it was verified. Everybody confirmed it. Um, and then just the idea that like, um, a regular person could actually win this and defeat a 52 year family dynasty, you know, and to do it without corporate money, to do it without the democratic machine, to do it just with people, you know, it was amazing. And, you know, it was, uh, overwhelming and humbling at the same time. It was bittersweet. You know, I wanted to, you know, cause it's like, Oh yeah, I um, am most likely going to be the first black Congresswoman from the state of Missouri, but it was bittersweet because it's like, it's 2020. So like, I just had all of these things going through my head. Also maybe bittersweet because I mean, it seems like something that really inspired you to run was the, was the murder of uh, Mike Brown and um, the protests in Ferguson. So was that in your mind when you won? You know, absolutely. Um, every single time we hit the ground to protest every, just every action that we've done over the last several years, those families, you know, from Mike Brown's family to, um, Carrie Ball's family and just so many, um, so many others, you know, that was on my mind. Plus I could hear the chants of the, um, uh, Ferguson and other St. Louis activists out in the, in the other room in my campaign office. And, you know, so they're chanting, you know, it was just, it was crazy, but I was thinking about maybe now I could be in a position to help save more lives, you know, because the work as the protester, you know, it does its part, but then also having the power of a pen, you know, and being able to put those two things together as a politivist walking in the door, you know, that, um, so that was on my mind. Where did you, did you come up with that word, politivist? I've never heard that. It's great. I, I did. I did. That's my word. <laughs> that's great. Not, it. Not that we believe in that stuff. It's coming, it's to be used by everyone. Right. But that's great. Yes. And, and what are you doing now? I mean, there's so much as a politivist, right? I've seen you, of course, getting out the vote and encouraging people to uh, fill out the census. Just tell people what, what you're up to now. And before you've even set foot, uh, in Congress. You know, Katie, I believe that if you have a platform, you better use it because there was a day when you wish you had a platform, you know, and you didn't have it. And then there are people who wish they had what you have, you know, so we have to capitalize, you know, on that moment, um, and, and use it. So I'm out saying, even though I'm still in a race, even though I have, um, what has been reported by local me by local media as a proud boy running against me in this race. And also, um, someone else who people are saying is a white supremacist, a lone white supremacist, um, running in the same race. Um, 
even though I have that, I understand that we have to be able to affect politics, not only locally, but, but um, within our state and, you know, um, on a national level. So we're out making—we we just finished a statewide tour. So first we did a district-wide tour, um, voter registration and census, especially in areas where we have high, um, a high number of people who are not registered to vote and um, where the census numbers are low. So we targeted those areas and we went in and we just went—you know, we did eight stops um, in two days. Uh, signed up a bunch of people to register to vote and for the census. Um, and then also getting the information out clearly, you know, talking about in Missouri, how it's $1,300 per person. I know in other places the numbers are different, but it's $1,300 per person per year for 10 years that we lose if for, um, if someone doesn't fill out the census. And so we were very clear about that. Um, and then what, what why people should uh, vote without vote shaming people. Um, so that was that's what we did um, last weekend. And then, uh, I mean, the prior weekend and then last weekend, we took from Thursday to Sunday, and we went around the state into areas where we knew that we needed to um, mobilize Democrats and excite them to the polls. And so we went and we talked with our statewide candidates um, to let them know that this is what we, we, we would be doing and ask them to come along. Um, and so we went into these areas and we helped get um, the numbers out for volunteers. We helped with voter registration and with the census. Uh, hopefully, we'll see a lot of change. Um, but those are the things we have to do on top of um, also this transition, you know, I got to transition and try to figure out what my, learn what my job is and then put, assemble a team. We need a DC team. We need a local team. We need our, you know, our district team. And then we need our campaign team. So it's a lot happening. And that's really interesting what you said about voter shaming. So trying to get out the vote without voter shaming. What is the case that you make? And and can you explain? I mean, I, I don't know why people don't seem to get this. I understand that people are, are totally understandably anxious about um, this election. But how do you do this without voter shaming, which, of course, is counterproductive? Right, right. I don't think we should shame anyone, you know, for not wanting to vote um, because of, because different people have different experiences. And so what we have to do is connect with people, you know, instead of walking in saying, you know, do you, you know, well, you don't vote, you know, you don't care about America, and blah, blah, blah. You don't care about people or whatever, whatever people are saying. No, it's, you know, I am a voter. And I and this is the reason why I vote. I heard you say that you're not a voter. You don't you don't believe in it or you think politicians or this or that. Well, let me tell you this. And so one thing that I did even just um, last weekend um, when someone said, oh, I don't vote. And I said, well, um, I'm going in as the first black congresswoman from the state of Missouri in our entire history, this being 2020, because people showed up to vote. And I only won by 40,000, by a little over 4,000 votes, you know, um, 4,166 4, votes. Um, and I couldn't have done that if it hadn't been for people um, showing up to, to vote. And I said, so it does make a difference. And I said, if you go and you check my background, you will see that I've been doing the work in the community for a long time. And so when you look at that, there are so many people across this country who are doing the same thing. They're working hard in their communities, but they need people to show up to vote because what's going to happen is somebody takes, so one thing I always say, somebody's going to take the seat. If you don't show up to vote, Oh well, somebody will take the seat. You might as well have a hand in who that person is and pick the best per the pick the person that best aligns with your values because when you get ready to um 
if you have a pothole outside of your house, you're not going to call on the president of the United States to fix this pothole. You need your local, your trustee, your alder person, your council person to do that. If you care about how many days a week the um, schools are in, um, what type of lunches they have, what are, you know, what are we, um, what's the deal with um, uh, uh, women's rights and all of that locally in your in your uh, state, then you need to go to your state legislate state legislators. And then you know, so I go through all of that and just tell them, you know, what's the difference between the federal and do you remember when my, when Michael Brown uh, was murdered and how we saw all, all of the police in our community, you know, that was because our incumbent voted for that, you know, and so, um, and then people are like, oh, like, you know, and, and I tell them there's no like ghost or genie that makes these laws. Like it's a person with a pen that, that does that, that talks to their colleagues because we voted them in or we sat back. And what about with the national election? Does that come up? Yeah, the national election comes up too, and people are, you know, some people are like, I'll vote for everything down ballot, but I'm not voting for the president. And what I tell them is, you know, I understand. I absolutely understand. But when we think about all that has happened with this current administration and we think about where we were four years ago, well, well four and a half years ago, um, when we, where we, when we think about where we were then and we think about how things have, have pushed um, towards hate, um, a lot of hate in this country, how that has been, um, how that is now the theme, how our American flag now is more, seems like it's more of a symbol of um, Donald Trump and it's a, or it's a symbol of people who have racist views than it is of a symbol of our country, how that thing has turned around. I said, uh, I say uh, um, four more years of Donald Trump feeling like he can do whatever he wants because he can make an executive order or he can just do things and then just hope he stays the lifetime president so he won't have to um, have to make an account for those things. I said the, the the same communities that feel marginalized and oppressed and disadvantaged and pushed back, neglected right now will be hurt even more. You know, um, they're already taking away our programs. Um, and then, so when I talk about that, then people are like, oh, okay, well, yeah, you know, because in end, do you believe that Joe Biden will cause us more harm than what Donald Trump is causing us right now? And we haven't even seen what real harm is yet, because when he knows he has four more years, he doesn't have to, he doesn't have to care. You know, he will do whatever he feels he can. You're someone who uh, has been very critical, um, rightly so, of the Democrats as well. So it seems like you're almost making um, a harm reduction argument for Biden which is something uh, I know Angela Davis endorsed you. Um, congratulations on that. That's a very exciting endorsement. Um, and I heard her, you know, one of the cases I've heard that I think it resonates with a lot of people for voting for Biden is he will create more space for anti-racist uh, organizing. That's what she said. Mm -hmm. So it's not that he's going to be a transformational president. It's that he would not be in the way as much of progress or not, um, roll things back as much. But how, how do you see um, your role as a congresswoman, um, you and the squad? What are you going to do to make sure that, you know, because what if, if Biden wins, everyone's going to, a lot of people are just going to have their eye off the ball, right? And think, okay, well, we got mm -hmm. the bad guy out. So now it's all good. How are you going to make sure that we don't stay in a position where the next time around we get another Trump who's maybe even, you know, actually politically savvy, um, how are you going to balance those things of kind of getting out the vote to defeat this guy, Trump, but also making sure that we don't create more um, returning to the status quo before Trump is also a dangerous thing? Exactly. Well, and part of that is because I don't we don't. Um, 
well, let me say I, I don't see eye to eye with everything that Joe Biden stands for, you know? Um, and so that those, even if he's in the seat, those are things that I would still be fighting for. I still, I still want to see, um, you know, um, I, I want to cut this whole good police, bad police thing. You know, we want, we want pol total police reform and I'm even, you know, getting closer to, you know, being an abolitionist. I don't, I can't say that I'm actually totally there yet, but I'm very close to it, you know? Um, but when we talk about defunding the police, we need to defund the police. And so that's something that I'm going to continue to push for. Um, and so we, I know we disagree, we disagree on that. There are several things that, you know, um, that his administration may feel differently on than, than I do in and many people like me. Um, so I'm still, I, we still got to fight for that. And we have to be even louder because I feel like that was part of the thing, even when, with Hillary Clinton, when she was running, so many people felt like, oh, but if she gets it, two things, if she gets it, then it's like the Democrats don't have to pay us any attention. It's like, you know, oh yeah, you all go away. We did it. You know, we're great. And the other thing is, you know, we don't have to talk about your issues anymore because everything is well. Well, no, everything wasn't going to be well for black people, brown people, trans people, and so many others, because they weren't, they weren't well before. Uh, and so this, uh, so that's kind of how I feel now. It's like, we won't have to fight as hard. It's like, do you have, you know, um, what do I use to cut the tree down? You know, and the tree is probably not a good one, but what, you know, what do you, what do I use? Do you know, what kind of tools do I use to do this thing? So I don't have to have as, you know, my tools don't have to be as, right. many, you know, going against uh, Joe Biden, but I still have to do the work. Right. Yeah. You're going to break a sweat either way, but you hopefully won't exactly. break it back. Um, exactly. And, and um, what about uh, Joe Biden's statements that uh, or, or there's that story that Joe Biden is is uh, some people are saying, including, um, I believe, Meeks, uh, Congressman Meeks, which is that they're, they're doing this divide and conquer thing, right, where they're pretending that only the only people who can fill a cabinet the only pe black people who can fill a cabinet are going to be from Wall Street. Um, do you know what I'm talking about? That that controversy yes. over. Yeah. And um, I know you've been very vocal ab about this, um, which I mean, mm -hmm. to me, it's just so offensive because it, it it suggests that black people are some kind of monolith and also some kind of corporate monolith. Um, so what is your response to that? Uh, you know, it would be different if we were if if my cousin that lives around the corner from me was hiring and she was trying to find, you know, somebody for, for a position and she had to put it out on like one of the platforms, you know, would it be harder for people to probably know that she's looking for that? Probably. Yes. We're talking about somebody running for president of the United States. And so people are like throwing resumes, like just want to know where do I, where do I send my resume? There are amazing people all across this country that not only live on the coast, but that live in middle America, that live North South, we have, we have to open this up to make sure that, um, that, you know, people who are not tied to wall street, you know, um, or, you know, these corporate lobbyists have, have this opportunity because they're going to come with different experiences and different values that people that so many Americans right now want, you know, we might not always support the progressive candidate like we should, but we support progressive values, you know? And so people want to see that. And me personally, I definitely, I don't care what color you are. I definitely do not want someone who who's first shown that they would rather stand with wall street or be a part of that whole, you know, be a part of that, um, that's that whole sector or someone who 
was a part of people who are taking money from, like, I, when I think about police brutality bonds, how Wall Street, how they um, gain, how they profit off of black murder at the hands of police. So to even want someone to be a part of that whole thing, like, I'm just absolutely not. And to think that we aren't smart enough like that, like, like, like we don't have, um, like there are no black people across the country that can do this work other than the people that made it to that part where they're working for, with lobbyists or they're working. And I'm, and I can't even, and I'm not coming against those people anyway, because some of them took the job because they took a job because they needed a job, you know? So, so that's fine for them, but we can do something different. And one thing that we've seen, Katie, is when we do stuff different, we can still make change and make progress. I did something different. People said you can't run as a protester and go to Congress. You can't run as a this or a that. I did it. So we got to stand on something. Show the American people. Yeah. And also, again, it's, you know, there's this myth that's, and again, it's really offensive. And to me, it's just like, okay, we get it. Either you only hang out with Wall Street people, Biden and, and the team or whoever's putting this message out that it's a, a purity test to want people not mm -hmm. from corporate America, not from Wall Street. Um, or you're just or it, the people making that argument either don't know any people of color who are progressive because they only hang out with Wall Street people or they're being cynical and lying. But um, your victory as a progressive, I think, also is really important because it shatters this myth that's, that, you know, black voters are a uh, firewall and also centrists. And, you know, uh, the progressive ideas like that, that Bernie Sanders has, that's only that's only good for straight white men. It doesn't resonate with uh, part, you know, with people of color. So what's your response to that? Yeah, it makes no sense. It, it, it makes no sense because all we're saying is people deserve food and they deserve health care and they deserve clean water and clean air and they deserve, um, you know, a livable wage and, you know, they deserve a quality of life. That's all we're saying. The, what has happened is because some people that people in power are the billionaires, the 1%, you know, and then all of these other power structures that are around them decided that we don't like that kind of talk because we need to keep the, um, the uh, haves and the have-nots, we need to make sure that that line is very clear, that they decided to put this out as like white liberal propaganda and all of that, when actually we're talking about something that should have been done before. It shouldn't even be a kind basic rights, you know, access to healthcare, you know, water, you know, those things shouldn't, we shouldn't even have to ask for them, but they have programmed society in such a way to where we think that you have to be of the upper echelon, of the upper echelon, or you have to be um, someone with a particular title, you know, in order to have these things, or you had to pull yourself up by some fake bootstraps. Folks don't even have boots, you know? Um, and so we, we come against that. And I stood with Bernie Sanders because he was speaking about things that I know people in my community face every single day and have been struggling for a long time to figure out how to get out. And I know because I'm one of those people, every single thing he was up talking about, it was, it started with me. I didn't have to look any further than myself because I've been low wage. I've been unhoused. I've been uninsured. I've had, um, lived in the housing that was, um, that was inadequate. I, so I understand. So I've been attacked. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Brutalized. Absolutely. Stomped by the police. Yes. So I, I get it. I get it. And it will stay the same if we don't have people who are willing to be champions and leaders and talk about this. One thing you can't do, you can't send me a death threat and scare me away. 
it's happened. You can't, you can't scare me with that. You can't threaten me and scare me to shut my mouth because what happens is when we shut our mouths, people die. So I won't, you, you can't scare me. You can't back me away from, from speaking about it. And the example that I had about speaking about those things, like right here, right now in my face was Bernie Sanders and not that other people aren't, but speaking about those particular things, healthcare and all of that, that was Bernie Sanders. And so as a nurse, it meant so much to me. And so that's why, you know, forget the color, forget the color, forget what people are saying about it. Is it what you need? And if you don't need it, what about your niece or your cousin or somebody else, you know, what about the person that comes to you and asks you for $50? You know, every time you turn around, they need some money for something. Well, you know what? Maybe they would need that. And you wouldn't have to say, oh, good gracious. Here they come again. If we had the basic things we need in our communities. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's just a cynical framing, um, that you, that there's this, uh, mutually exclusive choice, you know, that more representation or progressive policies as if only straight white men can bring that around because only straight white men know what that means. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's so offensive and it's so insulting, right? I mean, I couldn't believe it when I read that. And it's like, that's a, that's a purity test. If that's a purity test, then so is having a more diverse cabinet, which I don't think it's a purity test. Those are values. It's a value to have more diversity and more representation. And it's a value to have people who aren't from Wall Street. Exactly. Exactly. They are the people. The people are there. Like, you know, people people even came to me after people saw my tweet and said, we're here. You know, like where where do we send the resume? You know, and then and. Right. Exactly. Like what? <laughs> right. You know, and then also if if that is the case, did we if there are not enough, if, if, there, if there's such a small group of, of black people that can do this work, which I totally I know that's not the case. But let's just say if there is this super right for argument's sake, if there is a small group of black people that can do this work, then what has your work been all of this time um, to knowing that this was the case? And making sh and what was your work to make sure that there would be more? So I guess you just decided that there was no big deal, you know. So I mean, I mean, we're talking about people who've been in in these seats for a very long time, you know. What work were you doing then to make sure that that we have um, the people that are black that are coming up, you know, um, learning, being trained, and going through the education to be able to hold these type of seats? I'm just saying. Tell us about your, um, you are the, a single mother of um, two children. Yes. Two children. Yes. T can you tell us about um, what that's been like, what it's been like for them, how old they are, um, if they're excited, if you feel protective of them? Um, yes, abs absolutely protect protective of them. I'm very protective of them, so much so to where I don't really show them on uh, TV, do a lot of pictures um, with them, uh, just because they have to live their own lives. And I, you know, and they go through enough just with people knowing that they're my children um, and for safety purposes. Uh, but uh, my son is 20. My daughter is 19. Um, they are so excited. You know, they have been with me going through all of this, all of this time. They've been my biggest cheerleaders next to my dad um, and my mom. And my kids are, um, they, they've seen me go through and they've seen me continue to go, to move. Even after my first race, three weeks after my very first race, when I ran for U.S. Senate, um, I was violently raped you know, after the very first one, but they saw me then several months later, you know, once, once I started to get my mind back, I have to say that they saw me then run for, for run for Congress, you know, and then they saw while I was running for Congress, utility shutoffs and 
um, just so many things that happened to me while I was running. And then I was T-boned and was in a car accident, couldn't walk for almost six weeks, you know? So they saw me go through that, but then still running. And then even after my, that, that race, they saw me continue to run and go through so many things and then get sick with, you know, my COVID situation, you know? And so they've seen all of that. They saw me get hurt in, in Ferguson. They saw me hurt in protest. They've seen so many things, but they've seen their mom keep going. So they're so excited and happy right now. Um, my daughter though, you know, she says she has friends who, like really, you know, that really like look up to me. And, and so she's like, Oh, they're, they're, they're snapping about you. Are they talking about you on Instagram? They made memes about you. And she's so like, no, that's my mom. <laughs> but no, yeah, they love it. They're, they're happy. And, um, how do you deal with living? I mean, especially the mother of a young black man, do you have like constant anxiety in your heart Ooh. about his safety? Absolutely. That's why I decided to run, you know, in the first place, you know, whatever else I could do to help save his life, you know, and the life of my daughter. But, you know, for my son. Yeah. But, you know, just the idea that uh, my son, you know, he's taller than me. He has a mustache, you know, um, and, uh, and he likes to like wear his earbuds. And, and when it's cool outside, he wears his hoodie, you know, down but he's the most, he's the sweetest child. He's the sweetest kid. Um, he just loves his mom and pizza, you know, food, um, and like anime and video games like that's, you know, right. You know, but, but I, I fear that a police officer seeing him, if they stopped him while he was walking and he didn't hear them, that they would think that he was ignoring them. And then that could go bad. Um, I worry about that all the time, even to the point to where, even with him driving, you know, it took, it, it took me a very long time to be able to get in a car with him, to teach him how to drive because I, this, the, the fear of him being behind the wheel and, um, an officer stopping him, you know, even that's, that's a real concern for me even today, like all the time, every single day, there is not a day, not a moment when my, when my phone rings, everybody knows that knows me knows when my phone rings and it's a child, give me my phone. Like, I don't care what's happening. Give me my phone. Or even in the middle of an interview, I'm like, here, take my phone and answer it. If it's my right. kids. Yeah. And um, what are the issues that you're most excited to work on as, as a congresswoman? You know, first going in the door, um, working with COVID-19, for COVID-19 relief, uh, working with my um, sisters in the fight, you know, and Jamal, let me not leave out Jamal, um, <laughs> and um, working on uh, COVID-19 relief. The, I'm definitely in support of the $2,000 um, monthly payments, the UBI, uh, and then a, a real a, a real moratorium on shutoffs, uh, on um, evictions and um, canceling all shutoffs. Um, just continuing that. And then also, um, putting money into education because so many of our children are this, you know, online learning is difficult for them. So having, making sure that they have that national broadband, making sure that there is, um, that there are tutors available for them. And then, um, and also that they have the equipment that they need to be successful in school. Um, and then, and then along with that, hoping that we are able to get a, hoping that we're able to get a vote on Medicare for all. So I will definitely be pushing for Medicare for all, um, pushing for $15 an hour federal minimum wage. Um, and then of course the green new deal. So those are some things that I'll be pushing immediately plus criminal justice reform, but that is so broad. There's so many pieces to that, you know, so many pieces to that. Um, but you know, like I said before, defunding the police, uh, and, um, um, some real police accountability. And what does defunding the police mean to you? It means a reallocation of funds and that reallocation is, you know, uh, when we think about 
MRAPs and rubber bullets, bear mace, uh, you know, um, stockpiling SWAT gear. Those are the things that we don't need in our communities. We're talking about pe we're talking about hurting the people that live in our communities, the people that are the taxpayers, the people that are paying those people's salaries while they're hitting us with tear gas. So not spending money there, but then instead spending money on um, our unhoused population, making sure our unhoused community um, has has safe housing, putting money into our social services, making sure that mental health professionals are the ones that go out when there's a mental health issue instead of it being cops. You know, um, so you you know, um, so that's that's those are some of the things that we need to do. When COVID nineteen hit our community, when COVID nineteen hit our district, the districts that needed the help the most were the ones to get the COVID supplies and all of the um, all of the testing they were the, we were the last to get it you know but that part of that was because we didn't have the money we need to put the we need to put more money in health and hospitals put more money in human services in our communities and those uh, job opportunities well thank you so much any uh, anything else you want to make sure you say any shout outs uh, any can to any candidates or that you want to um, whose campaigns you want to mm -hmm. elevate or amplify yeah, absolutely. So first, I want to amplify um, Adrian Bell in Texas 14 running for Congress. Um, also, Pam Keith in Florida, um, you know, Marquita Bradshaw uh, and uh, I think Marquita's in Tennessee um, and then uh, running for U.S. Senate. My sister Paula Jean Swearingen running for U.S. Senate in West Virginia. So just to um, throw those names out. Um, also, uh, there are several people running for, for Congress, especially black women all over the country that we don't even know their names. I'm finding them all the time. Like, check, the, look them up, look, find out who these people are. Yes. And then um, lastly, shout out to all my, um, you know, shout out to the squad and to the incoming squad. I'm just ready to do the work. And people like Bernie and Pramila, um, uh, Senate, uh, Rep. Jaya Paul and so many others that have been standing with us. Thank you. Well, thank you so much and best of luck and come back on whenever you have a moment. Thank We'd you. love to have, have you on again. One. Thanks, thank you too. Okay. Bye. Ro Khanna is an American politician, lawyer, and academic serving as the U.S. Representative from California's 17th Congressional District since 2017. He's one of only six members of the U.S. House of Representatives and 10 members of Congress who do not take campaign contributions from political action committees or corporations. He's also the former national co-chair of Bernie Sanders' 2020 presidential campaign. You can find out more about him at kana.house.gov. That's K-H-A-N-N-A. -N -N Thank you so much for joining us again, um, Representative Kana. Katie, it's always a pleasure. Thank you. What are you working on right now? Well, we're in the midst of uh, stimulus negotiations. As you know, I have said we should make a deal. People are suffering. They don't have unemployment insurance. They can't pay the rent. Uh, in my district, which is quite affluent in Silicon Valley, you have food bank lines that are longer than I've ever seen. Uh, so we can't wait till February. I mean, the stock market can wait till February, but people can't wait. Uh, and we need basic language. I mean, I agree we shouldn't give Mnuchin a slush fund to go give to, to businesses, uh, but we uh, should not get fixated on 1.8, 1.9, 2 trillion. Uh, we can get the rest uh, once hopefully there's a change in administration. 
And so a lot of people were talking about um, a, a, a back and forth that you and Nancy Pelosi had kind of vicariously. Um, she was on Wolf Blitzer and Wolf Blitzer brought up that you were um, calling for the speaker to make a deal. And, and she was a bit dismissive, um, called you, you know, one person, which I think is great because you came out as a you know special person. But um, you seem to have kind of resolved that. Can you just talk about your either your change of heart or her change of heart or the change of circumstances? Well, one, I think there's been a change of circumstances and that McConnell has been very, very vocal that he isn't even going to bring anything onto the floor. So uh, that, I think, is the uh, real clear uh, obstacle. But the other thing is that there are a number of us. It wasn't just me. I just spoke out. There are a number of people in the caucus saying, let's let's make a deal. And uh, the speaker is uh, trying to do that. I mean, she's on the phone with Mnuchin almost every day, a few hours. Uh, there's been a lot of progress made. I'm convinced at this point that we would make a deal uh, if uh, McConnell brings it to the floor and that that's really the obstacle. Um, and uh, did she did she give you a certain did she pay you off with ice cream pints? <laughs> Sorry, I had to I had to couldn't resist that. Yeah, that's uh, I have never gotten ice cream. I have gotten chocolates from from Speaker Pelosi. She loves chocolates. Yeah. And anytime you go to her office, you get chocolates. Light or dark? Dark chocolate. Milk or dark? Dark? Dark, dark chocolate. You know, she is a, a, a consummate uh, host and, and, and very gracious to constituents or anyone visiting her, her office. Oh. Um, and so what in terms of um, what will happen when hopefully Biden um, wins, what what leverage will the left or progressives have um, to make him kind of become more progressive, be more progressive? Well, I, I don't think we can change Joe Biden's uh, personality or his ideology. I think what we have to do is flex uh, uh, power on behalf of the people, where Biden says, this is what people in Congress want. This is what uh, is needed. This is what the base uh, wants. Uh, and, and then I think he will respond to that. I mean, we've seen he's uh, a very talented politician. You don't get to be the nominee and uh, become president without being a talented politician uh, in usual circumstances. I don't, can't explain Donald right. Trump. Yeah. But, well, uh, he, is ta- he is on, he's talented. He's a talented yeah. marketer. Yeah, and, yeah, you know. yeah. yeah. Uh, but so Biden has shown that he's he understands where the party has moved and he has moved on a lot of issues. Uh, and I think that's because he's responding to sentiment. So I think the lesson for progressives is uh, we need to be just as bold, just as vocal. Uh, you know, it's harder, actually, to criticize even your own party or say anything that may be seen as uh, out of step. But I'll tell you, having done this a, a number of times where I've done it, uh, I've lived to tell about it, uh, you know, and uh, you may have a few scars, but they usually go away. Uh, and I hope that people will be bold and continue to push. And where they think that the vice president is right, we should support him. We shouldn't just reflexively sure. oppose everything he does, but we should push where we think he needs to do more. So what are some of those battle injuries uh, that you are referring to, like the things that you've done that have may have left some scars, but, but you got over? Yeah, I mean, Yemen initially. I mean, when I was out there pushing for uh, getting uh, out of uh, the support of the Saudis, that was a position that uh, 
the leadership uh, of both parties didn't want. In fact, they would have never allowed a freshman uh, to lead it, uh, if it if the leadership wanted it. The only reason they let me lead it is no one else wanted to touch it and they were opposed to it. Uh, but it was after the Khashoggi killing and after a lot of the mobilization that, that the leadership uh, came on board. There was there were times, uh, you know, I supported uh, uh, Trump's call to get out of Afghanistan and supported his call to, to have diplomacy in uh, North Korea. That wasn't a, a very popular uh, position uh, at the time. I uh, dual endorsed famously uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. That wasn't popular when I did that. So, but the point is, you know, it's not like uh, there are people around the uh, Congress who have permanent grudges. Maybe they do and don't tell me. Right, yeah. uh, m m mostly if you're uh, on the side, if people see that you're trying to advocate what you believe in, uh, they'll come around, especially if you do it in ways that are not attacking uh, people personally. Yeah. Um, so there are some rumors floating around about um, like very prominent Republicans who are being uh, vetted uh, potentially for cabinet positions. And I know some people like AOC um, is uh, demanding that there aren't any hires with corporate backgrounds. So uh, what do you see your position on that? Do you think that it's like even possible to have an ideologically mixed cabinet um, that is at all progressive? Uh, do you think that this this type of quote unquote unity actually undermines uh, achieving progressive goals. Should there be a red line? Well, it depends on in what role. I, I think the question is, let's say, consider John Kasich. I mean, if John Kasich, I would never have him as Treasury Secretary or Secretary of State or someone who's shaping uh, policy in, in that way. But if he wants to be an ambassador to Republicans to get him on board for progressive policies, sure. Or it depends on what Republican, right? I mean, I work with uh, Matt Gates right. on uh, stopping endless wars. And if there was an appointment of Rand Paul and a role in the to, to right. uh, limit the military, uh, fine. Uh, you obviously have to build coalitions. The, the problem is not you can't have a view. Let's not work with Republicans. Uh, the, the view, but the point is, do not compromise one's right. principles uh, to uh, accommodate uh, the ideology uh, that you don't believe in. And I think that's the that's the difference, at least from my perspective. Right. Hopefully, don't believe in because sometimes I think there is a bit more of an overlap than than I'd like to see or. Than, than Democrats uh, would like to acknowledge. What are you looking forward to with with these incoming? You've the squad is growing. Um, it's a very yeah. talented class. I mean, yeah. I, I, you, you see Mondor Jones and yeah. uh, the um, uh, and so many others, Jamal Bowman, yeah. and I mean, uh, and uh, so so much energy. Uh, and, you know, the House is going to be, I always say the House is an interesting place, much more interesting in my view than the Senate, because the House is willing to question norms and right. uh, be out there. And yeah, some ideas may be off the wall, and I don't agree with everything, but that's it's better in my view to have that kind of robust debate than the same cookie cutter debate that we've been having for the past 20, 30 years, where people have been left behind and are hurting and we haven't had structural reform. So uh, I think that there's this is going to be a very exciting Congress. Uh, I think a lot can be done. You have you're going to have loud voices for uh, Medicare for all, loud voices for free public college, loud voices for universal early childhood education, loud voices for getting us out of bad wars, loud voices for a Green New Deal and aggressive climate change policy. So you're suddenly going to have a wing of the Democratic Party in elective office that actually reflects the aspirations of most people around the country. And a lot of people, I mean, are concerned. Uh, there's a lot there's a lot of I mean, I think it looks like Biden's going to win a landslide. But some people are concerned that 
uh, Trump is incredibly unpredictable, but he's he's not a consistent hawk. And I think there's some people who are afraid that war may be as maybe likely under Biden, as likely under Biden as it would have been under Trump. So what can be done to kind of to prevent that? I don't think that's the case. I think Biden himself has uh, evolved in his own uh, public service career. Uh, he was one of the voices opposed to the escalation in Afghanistan. And that, to me, is a really important data point, because the escalation in Afghanistan, in my view, was one of the big strategic mistakes of our foreign policy uh, in the past uh, uh, past couple decades. And so I think Biden is going to come in with a view of military restraint, not wanting to get bogged down in a war. I think he's going to try to re rectify the situation uh, with Iran. Obviously, we have to be vigilant, but we've learned the lessons of Iraq and, and, and Afghanistan and, and Syria and Libya and Yemen uh, and people in his administration and the Obama administration have learned some of those lessons. So I, uh, I, I'm more optimistic that we're not going to get into these foreign interventions. And what do you think about the Cicilline report? Well, I think there's a lot to recommend it. I would say that there's th three things there that I would take away that are important. One is the uh, abuse of dominance standards. So you look at, for example, this lawsuit that DOJ brought against uh, Google. And uh, there's no reason on my iPhone that Google should be the default uh, the default search engine. I mean, why not give uh, people the choice of using Bing uh, or uh, Yahoo as well? And that could be addressed under this abusive dominant standard uh, that the report recommends. The second is a duty to deal. You should have to deal with people unless you can show a clear consumer benefit so that people have access to these platforms. And the third is a skepticism towards big mergers uh, that are anti-competitive. I mean, in retrospect, uh, I don't think Facebook should have been allowed to acquire WhatsApp and, and Instagram. So uh, I think you can get to a large part of these issues uh, being with, with the right policies. The only thing I would caution is there's a lot of challenges with technology, disinformation campaigns, uh, threats of violence, people left behind in a digital economy. And sometimes people think antitrust is kind of the silver bullet that's going to solve all of them. I think it's an important quiver, uh, it, it arrow in our quiver, but there's a lot more that needs to be done to really democratize the innovation economy. Like what? Well, a few things. One, we need an Internet uh, bill, privacy bill of rights. Right now, if you look at the record uh, with Quan, uh, uh, QAnon, uh, most of those, 64 percent of those are actually Facebook recommending based on people's data uh, that they join those groups. So now if you broke it up, for example, you had three Facebooks all recommending that, what are you solving? Uh, not much. What you actually need is to make sure Facebook can't use your data, at least without real consent, uh, to target you. Uh, there are other Internet Bill of Rights that I've introduced to, in terms of a comprehensive Internet Bill of Rights. The second thing is total communities left behind in the wealth creation. I mean, you look at the racial wealth gap in this country, it's gone up over the last uh, three decades. So if you had, let's say, three Googles or three Apples in my district or in Silicon Valley, how is that helping minority communities or uh, helping uh, rural America? How do we actually expand the, the innovation economy? All of that is to say, look, I started by saying, these platforms have to be regulated and you need new standards, you need tougher antitrust law. But sometimes I think people just stop there and they don't they think that's going to solve everything. And, and I think it's a necessary but not sufficient uh, step. 
Right. Um, what about the Amy uh, Coney Barrett uh, nomination? I wanted, I think the first time I ever had you on my show was to talk about um, Kavanaugh. Um, what, I remember that. Yeah. And uh, you were you thought it was an uphill battle, but, you know, you were hopeful. Obviously, that didn't work out. Um, what's what do you predict here and what can be done about this, if anything at all? I'm not sure much can be done. I mean, I, I, I was saddened to see Feinstein, as you may remember, I was one of the first to have called for a primary challenge. And, yeah, uh, you know, and and it was uh, unfortunate that we, we didn't do much. But the, 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 the reality is I, I don't know why we weren't able to flip the messaging. I mean, it's the Republicans that have been packing the courts, right? right. I mean, it's the Republicans who've uh, blocked all of Obama's nominees, who had Mitch McConnell uh, it ran through uh, through judges, but it's it's scary. I'll tell you, the the fact is that they're going to be hearing cases, not just the Affordable Care Act, I mean the Census. They're actually hearing that case and thinking about not counting those who are undocumented uh, in our country. So uh, it is a, a a very concerning time. One of the things I think we need is court reform, and and I have a bill on term limits that I think could actually pass the Congress. Uh, and get uh, broad support. I mean, the Republicans always say, let's have term limits on Congress and Senate and the president. But why not have term limits on Supreme Court justices? Yeah, who wield much more power than, as per capita. Oh, absolutely. They yeah. do. You don't have to make me feel nice. They, they wield more more power. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. In general, I, right. and they're, you know, they're pronouncing on some of the biggest issues of our of our time. And, and what I've said is we are basically being governed often by a previous generation. You have people who have been right. appointed 30 years before who are now making rules. Uh, have them there 18 years. They can be judges for life. No one's going to take away their prestige or their robe. And so you can have it constitutional. But uh, yeah, you shouldn't have. Uh, someone making laws 30, 40 years after they were appointed. Right. Although even with like, you know, the new ones, they don't have to be vintage to be terrible. Kavanaugh. Well, that's, or yeah, the, no, yeah. that, that's a good point. Some of the, yeah. the newer ones are actually more extreme. Exactly. And, you know, yeah. were saved in Pennsylvania. I, I don't know if you followed the decision to, to stay. I mean, uh, there were four dissenting opinions saying that basically wanting to take up the Pennsylvania Supreme Court case that is allowing ballots to be counted uh, on up to uh, the day of if they're postmarked. Uh, and it was Roberts who actually w voted with the liberal wing. Oh, now, yeah. here's the challenge. Let's say Amy Coney Barrett is on that court. Uh, could they take up that case because the state doesn't have precedent? So someone brings that case after the election saying, let's not count any of these ballots uh, that were uh, received after the election day. And then you have basically Amy Coney Barrett possibly deciding what happens in the state of Pennsylvania. Wow. We really got to delay that. What can we do? Well, I'm, I'm open to, to suggestions. suggestions. Yeah, some you kind know, of creative. Uh, now, what do you think? Um, do you think Trump will try to steal the election? And if so, what can be done about that? Well, I agree with you that I think if the election were tomorrow, Biden wins and uh, decisively. My only concern is uh, these types of strategies where if he takes it to the courts, it would be very hard to do if Biden wins Florida right. and Arizona and, and he's, if he's up on four, five, six states. But that's a hard, hard, hard thing to do. I mean, people forget that, uh, you know, the margins in 2012 for Obama uh, were three or four points in a lot of these swing states. So uh, these races tighten. And, and if you have a situation where Biden is a clear winner, but uh, he's up only three, four points in Pennsylvania, and that depends on the absentee votes being counted properly, uh, I could see Trump trying every little 
litigation technique to prevent the counting of votes. And that, uh, when people say, is there a 10, 20 percent risk of Donald Trump remaining? Uh, I think that is that risk, that he's going to use legal strategies to disenfranchise voters uh, if uh, enough of the battleground states are ambiguous. You just made me think maybe I mean, I don't want to underestimate him and his telling the Proud Boys to stand down, but stand by. I wonder if that's almost like the equivalent of his Twitter, where it's a distraction. I mean, he's at this point, he seems to have totally lost it. But um, it, that could be a distraction, too. But if it's a distraction from the more above board, I mean, sleazy, but technically legal things that he would try to do, maybe everyone's going to be worried about violence breaking out, which we should be. But I wonder if that's going to be kind of a a distraction from what he will actually try to do. I, I do. I think he's going to try every legal maneuver to disqualify right. states and disqualify ballots. Uh, I do think that, you know, I think in 2016, he was a much better candidate. I disagreed with his message, but it was much more about the system is broken. Here's what I'm going exactly, to do right. for you. Uh, and it was terrible promises, but he was promising something. Now right. it looks like he's running a grievance campaign. It's all he feels totally aggrieved. I don't know how you feel aggrieved after you've been a billionaire right. president of the United States, but he feels like he's been dealt a raw hand in life. Right. And he's basically uh, running a campaign uh, on all these conspiracy theories. I mean, right. I, uh, uh, I, I don't think it, I, I don't think it's going to work. It's it's shocking to me when you look at the polls. Uh, I don't understand why he has as much approval on the economy. A lot of people have been doing uh, much worse and the uh, pandemic has been totally mismanaged. But that's the one place where he actually does fairly well. And anyone would say, OK, so why aren't you running on the economy as opposed to sort of disinformation campaigns about Hunter Biden? But it's almost like he's living in his own universe, uh, determined to only speak to 40 percent. Speaking of that, do you think that it was right for uh, Twitter and Facebook to kind of stop people from sharing the Hunter Biden uh, article? No, I don't, actually. I, uh, I, I think even if it was hacked and uh, if, if it was from an illegitimate source, it's a dangerous precedent to have corporations have so much power uh, that they don't allow journalists to disseminate that. I mean, the famous cases of the uh, Pentagon Papers uh, in terms of uh, our involvement in, in Vietnam or the uh, WikiLeaks Iraq war logs were all got, uh, gathered through uh, unauthorized sources. So uh, would I have a problem if Twitter or Facebook wanted to label it and, and have an editorial comment or have a link saying, look at something else. No, but to uh, to suspend accounts uh, and to take down content, one, it made it a bigger story. Exactly, and two, yeah. uh, two, I'm really uncomfortable with Jack Dorsey or Mark Zuckerberg sort of uh, having that kind of power over speech in our society. And um, speaking of WikiLeaks, what are your thoughts on Assange and Snowden? Well, I had a bill, actually, uh, the Right to Protect Journalists Act. I, I'm probably not getting the name exactly right, which basically says that you as a journalist, Katie, uh, or, or, or someone else, if you get information uh, from a source, even if that source inf did illegal things to get that information, as long as you didn't participate in that illegality, uh, you shouldn't be uh, prosecuted. So to me, it's not about the particular personalities. It's about making sure that we don't prosecute journalists for disseminating uh, information that's in 
the public interest. So, uh, you know, people say, well, what about uh, breaking and entering into your home? And I, I said, well, look, if someone broke and entered into my broke into my home and discovered information that uh, there was allegations of uh, where I wasn't doing my job correctly, I, I believe they should be prosecuted for breaking into my home. But I don't think a journalist should be prohibited from writing about that if it's in the public interest. Right. It's like you don't get it's not like a law case where you where things are inadmissible. Right. It's a, and, and, and look, now, if they took things about, you know, uh, my kids and it had nothing to do with my job, that's different. But if there's something of the public interest uh, and uh, a journalist thinks that, then, then journalists should have that out there. It's where I, one of the places I uh, totally think the New York Post was wrong is publishing the pictures of Hunter Biden. So I, I, I totally distinguish between things that arguably are in the public concern and then going after people's private lives that have absolutely nothing to do uh, with the public interest. Right. But you and you still think, though, I mean, well, this is what I think. I agree. Uh, I, I still think, though, that the precedent of letting Twitter, you know, block certain things is dangerous because it's if they did that, then they have to go through every story that does that. Yeah, I don't I don't think Twitter ought to be doing that. Yeah. I think Twitter, you know, people say, well, Twitter is a private company. Yeah, but they have a tremendous amount of power. Yeah. And, and I don't think that we want to set up a precedent that uh, multi-billion dollar companies are uh, are dictating the yeah. boundaries of, of speech. There are other things they can they can do. They can uh, they don't have to actively promote. For example, they for the longest time they were promoting uh, QAnon and trending news and Facebook yeah. was actively recommending people to join that. I mean, that I don't see the need to do that. So right. there are other things that they could label something. They could say a Twitter believes that you should research right. this further. Right. But to take things down, uh, to deprioritize them based on potential ideology, that I just think is setting a, a dangerous precedent. And have you followed at all um, the the revelations about the whistleblower in around the Duma chemical weapons attacks? Have you heard I about that? Okay, not. I'll I'll send it to you because it's really Please. interesting, and there's been a total media blackout about it, and even it even involves um, Jose Bustani, who was the guy who got kicked yeah. out last time. So I will send that to you. Please um, send it. Yeah, and um, last thing is uh, your pitch to to voters who who don't like Biden. Um, yeah, what and are on the left, like to to, and I know that Bernie's telling people to vote, but what what's your argument for why this is important? Well, the first argument is if people saw Amy Coney Barrett's uh, testimony and one of the good questions that Senator Feinstein asked is, do you believe in the constitutionality of Medicare? And for Amy Coney Barrett to sit there and not be able to answer that Medicare is constitutional. Can you imagine if Donald Trump has the court appointments for the next four years? Uh, how are we ever going to get to Medicare for all if we get more justices on there uh, who may strike down Medicare itself because they think that's an overreach of the federal government? Uh, so we need to make sure we preserve the option of progressive policies. Second, when you look at uh, environmental policy, I think there'll be a world of difference. I mean, you, you have someone who's basically out there bragging about uh, allowing uh, expanding fossil fuels, and then you have someone who may not be as bold as uh, people watching uh, you want, but who is committed to uh, moving to a, a carbon-free economy, is committed to massive investments in renewables, is committed to uh, creating a Green New Deal jobs, and probably would have the ability to go into uh, places in the Midwest and make that case. And, and uh, so I, I, I think that the environmental policies 
uh, make a difference. And then finally, uh, you know, when you look, and I was reminded because a journalist talked about 550 kids, 540 kids who were separated, still separated from their families. And I believe that was, you know, the greatest crime of the Trump administration, just a total lack of uh, of any humanity. Uh, and I, I, I certainly don't think Joe Biden would do even dream of doing anything as horrific. Right. Um, although everyone's going to push back and say Obama deported more kids than, you know, more people than other presidents. But um, I still there, think that. Yeah. yeah. And I disagree with his deportation, but yeah. there's a difference between deporting people as, as 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 wrong as that policy may have been and separating uh, cruelly taking a kid away from his parents. I mean, I think that there's uh, and doing that intentionally. Uh, I think there's a much there's a difference of degree. Yeah. Um, final thing, final thing for real is that David Sirota, I had him on. He said something really interesting, which is that he really fears, of course, that Trump wins. He doesn't want Trump to win and yeah. he hopes he loses. But he's also afraid of if the Democrats get back into power and don't really deliver for the working class, that we're going to get a, another Trump who's smarter, less of a buffoon and really will be a threat, uh, more of a fascist threat than than Trump. So. Well, I, I agree with him that if we don't get uh, do things that are bold and that take care of some of the, the working class and people have been left out, then there's going to be a reaction against the Democratic Party and we'll see new Republicans come. Uh, I think Trump is uh, one of a kind in a negative way and in a in, in a way as an entertainer and a, and a showman. I know people talk about Holly and Cotton, and but yeah. come on, they're not going to be able to. I mean, uh, they don't have the theatrical uh, and branding uh, skills of Donald Trump in terms of he's a horrible leader, but people uh, people always yeah. say, wouldn't it be easier to run against Pence? No, I mean Donald Trump has a a, a showmanship and marketing and a, an experience of ten years on broadcast television that I think makes him a, a a unique threat. Yeah, but how would that make it? Sorry, isn't it easier to run against Pence? You no, know, it'd be harder to run. You're saying it'd be harder to run against Pence because no, I think it's I think it's easier to run against Pence. I think Donald Trump. I still believe. I mean, we'll see how the. I still it. believe that Trump has. I, I don't think there are other people who would have been able to do what right. Trump. I see. Right. Right. So you're to. saying a, a Cotton or whatever won't be able to because they don't have this weird gift that he has. So, yeah. Yeah. The weird, weird. Yeah. But but I do think it will be. Uh, we will see losses by the by the Democratic Party in the midterms if and. Uh, could lose the presidency if uh, uh, if, if we uh, aren't aren't bold. Yeah. Well, thank you for being so bold and so principled. It's always great to talk to you. I always enjoy it. Thank yeah. you, thank Kitty. You so much, Congressman Kana. Bye. Take care. Thanks again so much for listening to the Katie Halper Show. Please rate and review us on iTunes. Please become supporters of the show at Patreon. That's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Some Patreon-only episodes coming up uh, include Aisha Kirshaswamy talking about big tech and censorship. And um, if you can't afford the $5 a month, which is for the Patreon-only premium episodes, then you can still support the show for $1 a month. Also, Friday night, the Katie Halper Show and Struggle Session are doing another joint live over Zoom show for Littlefield. Our guests are going to be Abby Martin, Rania Kalik, and Brendan Sutton. So to get tickets for that, it's at 7 p.m. To get tickets for that, go to littlefieldnyc.com. Again, it's littlefieldnyc.com. Thanks. Bye.